have shutters. The shutters likely would have been open, right, because any, any kind of breeze is helpful, but those are probably, now that I think of it, full of people as well. And there's these stairs that go up the side because on the top there's this roof and these beams that go across, these wooden beams. And there's also like these like overlay of branches with clay stamped down. And there's this like rooftop deck. And you're like, what? Billy didn't invent the rooftop deck. No, we did not. But there's a rooftop deck. It was like a place that people would go and sleep just to get away from the heat because the hottest place was in the house. So you imagine that Jesus is now in this home and if you close your eyes and just imagine being in this home and you're looking at Jesus and all that you know of him up until this point is this is the guy that cast a demon out and every, he healed a ton of people recently. And he's, he's teaching. And so you can hear him teaching and he's teaching the same thing that he's taught all along, which is about the kingdom. He's like, man, the time has arrived. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And so he's speaking of the reign of God on earth. And he's, he's communicating what that is going to be like. And he's, he's inviting people to repent and believe in the good news. And the good news is that the king is here. But you realize that this is kind of a mixed crowd, right? So like you have, you have people that are there just to, just to find out a little bit more about his teaching. You have people that are there because they need to be healed. You have people that are there because they're skeptical. Because just a couple of days ago, Jesus was in the synagogue, and he taught with an authority that was like anything they've ever heard, and that was kind of unsettling for the scribes and the religious leaders of the day. So you have this crowd that is, that is gathered and smashed into this home that is looking at Jesus. Maybe as you're in there, you begin to realize that there's some kind of rustling in behind you, and you were lucky enough to get in, so congratulations. Um, but there's this rustling behind you, and you realize that there's someone going up these stairs onto the roof. And maybe you can't really figure out what that is and you don't mind it much, but you just continue to focus on Jesus. But then you begin to sense that they're on top of the roof. And this is what's crazy to me about this story. In verse four, it says, and when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. It's like, this isn't a small hole. It's not like they just like threw rope around him and just kind of like lowered him down into a hole. You know, it's like they dug. Like what would likely happen was that they dug a hole out that was big enough for a man to lay on. And there's four men, solid friends. Like you need friends like this, you know? There's four men that just kind of begin to lower him down. And as, you're, as they're digging this hole, it's likely that there's like dirt and dust falling around. I don't know how Jesus continues to teach, you know? At a certain point, it's probably one of those things where you just kind of step back and be like, we're just, we're gonna watch now, you know? <laughs> we're just gonna let you do it. And so they eventually lower this man down into, into this room because it was the only way that he could get in. And Jesus looks at him and he says, because of their faith, their faith, he says, son, your sins are forgiven. And immediately he then turns to the scribes and he realizes that this is a mixed crowd. And there is something else happening in the room and he looks at the scribes and he says, why do you question things, these things in your heart? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. Rose immediately picks up his bed, everyone leaves, and they're praising God. Um, this passage right here, um, what Jesus does here in that culture is unacceptable. Like it is 
scandalous. And we may miss it along the way, but I, I, want, I want to draw out just two things. And the first thing that I want us to see is that Jesus sees and heals our greatest need. Jesus sees and heals our greatest need. So one of the things, if you're just like following along, as you're reading in your own time in Mark, and as we're kind of like walking through this one Sunday at a time, um, one of the things that you're going to begin to see is that there is a certain sense of like desperation for those that need healing and see the power that Jesus has. So whether it's the leper going to Jesus, whether it's this this man, the paralytic that's being lowered down, whether it's you know, whether, whether it's the man that's blind, whether, whether it's even the centurion later on, it's like there's, these, there's this desperation that they break social norms. They break everything because they realize their only shot is if they can get in front of that kind of power. And so you see Jesus in this room and you see the power that he has. And you understand that like, it's likely in, in a town like Capernaum, it's likely that other people knew who this paralytic was. Um, and for him to be lowered down into the room and for Jesus to look at him and to say, your sins are forgiven, it almost feels anticlimactic. And you're like, well, no, his sins is... But think about the moment, like, being in the room. Like, everyone has got to be thinking, he can't walk. <laughs> you know? He can't walk. Your sins are forgiven. He can't, like... What about, like, his inability to move? That, is he going to heal him, is what everyone's thinking. And so Jesus gives this answer, which would have been an odd answer at the time. And, and I, I think it's helpful for us to see this, because one of the things that I think we so quickly run to, like, even when, even in this, is that, like, we see this correlation between sin and sickness. And in, in that culture, um, it was understood that your, like, sin in general and sickness are, are tied in a general way, which is true. Like, sickness enters the world through sin and death. But in, but in that culture, it was a little bit more specific. It was like your sins or your parents' sins are the reason that you are experiencing this sickness. And Jesus kind of like walks the line with these, where he's like, yes, but no. And what he does right here is he actually separates these two things. He separates the physical and the spiritual. And the first thing that he does is he addresses the most important need, which is the spiritual. So if you think about it, this entire, this man's entire life, people have looked at him as a paralytic, and it's likely that he's taken on that identity as to that's who he is. And for the first time, he's lowered in front of Jesus, and Jesus doesn't see him that way. Like, do you realize for the first time, he sees him differently than everyone else in the room? Jesus sees him, and he says, son, which is a completely different way. Like, you're gonna see two hearts. Jesus sees in this moment two, two hearts that are completely different. But when he looks at these, this paralytic and he looks at these four men, four men, what he sees in this man, he sees fully known in this moment. He knows his sins. Like, he doesn't look at him and just see, his, see someone that can't walk. He sees someone that has sinned. And I think um, in our lives, we live with this tension. I think we long to be fully known, and yet it's also our greatest fear. Like we long to be known, but yet we live in this tension where we know that if we were to be fully known and fully exposed, that it would almost crush us. 
And so I, I guess you can think about it this way. If I were to take um, your, just let's say the past 24 hours, we could say the whole week, but the past 24 hours, and put it up, put like all of your thoughts up on the screen for everybody to read, um, there's probably some things to be embarrassed about. And we probably find a lot of things in there. Um, there would be anger, anxiety, criticism, judgment, lustfulness, deceptiveness, vengefulness, anything, just go on and on and on. Um, one of the things you've also seen probably and likely would be kindness and generosity, caring. And I think when we live in this tension, one of the things that you do for me and I do for you is that we have this agreement where we choose to see what's good in one another. And ultimately what we're saying is that we're going to see what's good first. But deep down what we know is that just what's good in this moment and what the best part of you is not all of you. And the tension that we feel every day is this, but what if I was fully accepted? Like, what if I was fully known? And it's the beauty in this moment is that Jesus sees this man. He sees his faith. And the first thing that he does is he looks at him. He sees all of him. And he says, your sins are forgiven. He doesn't just see him as a paralytic. He doesn't just see him as who he's putting forward. He doesn't just see him as the identity that maybe even he holds. But he chooses to forgive sins. Which, um, man, when I think about this, I think about how Jesus is portrayed all throughout Scripture. Um, he's portrayed in many different ways, but maybe one of my favorite ways is in Hebrews chapter 2. I mean, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2. It says, in the last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he's appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Like that, that's Jesus. So if that's Jesus, that's like, my goodness, what a massive view of who Jesus is. So often we reduce Jesus down to just, man, he played a role in the redemptive story of creation. True, vital. He came as, as flesh and he died on the cross and then he served his role and now he's done. I don't know, but I would look at this and I'm like, the radiance of the glory of God, he created the world through him, he upholds the world by the word of his power. It's like someone has a bigger view of like what Jesus is doing. And so if we were to take that view of who that Jesus is and now put him in the room with this paralytic and, and to have that Jesus look at him and say, your sins are forgiven, something different takes shape. In chapter four of Hebrews, this is teased out just a little bit more. Hebrews 4, 12 through 16 says, for the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, pierces the division of soul and spirit and joints and marrow and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. We need to talk about this for just a second. So we often use this just to validate the fact that this is the word of God. And that is so true. And it does all of these things. But what this means is, is even more like there's like the, this is the actual utterance from the Lord that created the world like the word of God it's the utterance that God spoke through his prophets it's the utterance that God spoke through the spirit and and the followers of Jesus Christ it's the utterance that God spoke most importantly the word that became flesh in Jesus Christ it's the word of God like and all that it encompasses and it and it splits joints marrow discerns thoughts and tensions of the heart. No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him whom we must give account. 
but then Jesus in verse 14. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God. Let us hold fast to our, with our confession for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. It's like you have this Jesus who is standing in a room that is proclaiming the word of God to these people, who embodies the word of God, that this man is lowered down into this room and he, he draws near to the throne of grace in Jesus Christ and, and there's grace and there's peace and there's forgiveness. It's the most important thing that happened that day that it was displayed that Jesus has the authority on earth to forgive sins. He does. You see it with this man and you see this man's response, but the story doesn't end there, it continues. The second thing that we see is that Jesus sees and reveals our disbelief. So what they accuse him of right here immediately. So Jesus understands this man's heart and responds to it as only he can in forgiving sins. but then what happens is he also like, understands that there's other hearts in the room and there's those that, it doesn't even say that they spoke, it says that in their heart, that there was this, he's speaking blasphemy. Um, which, is, which is a legitimate, logical argument. Like what, what they see in that moment is that they're, they're functioning according to the old Levitical law. In Leviticus chapter 24, verse 16, it says that anyone who speaks blasphemy in the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the, all the congregation shall stone him. The sojourner as well as the native, when he blasphemes the name, shall be put to death. So it's like this is, this is according to the Levitical law, Levitical law, if someone were to speak in opposition to God, um, they, that, that's what would happen. But this is, this is the same accusation that they're going to carry through the ministry of Jesus and ultimately put him on the cross. And one of the things that you see here is that there is either one or two things happen. Either Jesus is blaspheming and he's speaking in an authority that he does not have, or he is truly displaying this authority and he is who he's claiming to be, which is God. And those who are opposing him are now blaspheming and opposing God. So someone is blaspheming in the room. And there's this idea of like, all right, so what is, what is this tension in the room? How does this get played out? And what Jesus does with it is, is he says, okay, so what's easier? What's easier for me? Is it easier for me to say your sins are forgiven or is it easier for me to tell this man to, to rise up and walk? And this has been debated for a long time as to what, what, is, what does this mean? Um, but I think in the simplest in the simplest way, what, what he's communicating in this moment is that I have worked the greater miracle. That greater miracle is invisible to you. I'm about to show you a visible, a visible miracle so that you can have the belief to believe in the greater miracle that took place already. And so he does. And this man stands up and walks. But what you see is as this man experiences freedom, their hearts begin to harden even more. And as you follow the story, you see the separation between the religious leaders of the day and Jesus that causes this tension in the story because they know what Jesus is claiming. Jesus says that he refers to himself as the son of man. Um, 
And as you read the, the book of Mark, you realize that people call Jesus many things. Um, often they call him the Messiah, the Christ, um, Son of God. He refers to himself in these ways, but the thing that he calls himself most is the Son of Man, which feels odd. And it's it's been part of it's like it's like this like sure it's it's his humanity and his divinity, the Son of God and the Son of Man. But if you look at Daniel chapter seven, it's more. Like Jesus has a very specific idea of who he is. This is what Daniel seven. There's a vision that Daniel has, and we've read this before, but it's helpful for us to remember. This is what. This is what Daniel sees as the Son of Man. It says, Daniel 7, 13 through 14, And behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like, the son of man, like a son of man. And he came to an ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. It's like, that's who Jesus is. That's who Jesus is not allowing anyone else to redefine. So at this time, um, the idea that you could forgive sins was something that was only reserved for God. So even even prophecy, like like if you're a prophet in the Old Testament, you didn't forgive sins personally or take on that you could actually be the source of that forgiveness. You would um, you would forgive sin on behalf of the Lord. And even the idea in the current moment of the Jewish understanding of the Messiah was that the Messiah wouldn't even be, be able to forgive sins. He came to be a political, spiritual, religious leader. But that God was the only one that could forgive sins. And Jesus knows this. He knows this. And so when he's standing there and he says, I am proving to you that the Son of Man has the power and the authority to forgive sins here on earth. What he's saying and what they're getting is he's claiming to be God. He's claiming to be the Lord, like like in communion, one with the Father. It's radical. It's a statement that ultimately is going to get him killed. I think... um, one of the things that we find as we, as we read through the scriptures is that um, it's easy to miss these things along the way. Um, it's easy to read stories that we've grown familiar with and easy to get excited about the idea that someone was lowered into a room. But I think what I want us to know here more than anything today is that it is true that Jesus claimed that he was God and he then displayed that ability through forgiving sins here on earth. And it's, it's the reason that we can celebrate the cross. It's the reason that we can celebrate his life. It's the reason that we follow along and we learn, like, what did he say? What did he display in his teaching? Jesus radically, radically changes the entire landscape. So I wanted to give us some time, um, and I think our, our goal was to... Um, just for today to be a moment where we could reflect on this. And you can reflect on this on your own. You can reflect on this together. If it's helpful for you to grab someone else, I would encourage you to do that. Um, But I wanted to give us some time just to say, okay, so have I considered the fact that I've been invited through Jesus to the throne of grace, that I, I don't have to hide anymore. 
like, just as Jesus sees the paralytic, like, he's ready and willing to forgive sins. But the difference between these two was that one had faith and one did not. And so the question is, who do you say that he is? It's a question that we're going to ask like over and over and over again because it's at the heart of the book of Mark. It's the same question that Jesus asked Peter in chapter 8. Who do you say that I am? And so I think it's helpful for us to just take a moment and to just say, Lord, is there anything that, we're, that, we, have, that we have hidden from the Lord as though we can hide from the Lord? Is there any part of our life, any sin, anything that we have taken on that, that we feel as though as if it was exposed that it would crush us? And I want to invite you just to go before Jesus, who addresses you as, like, how good would it be to have Jesus walk in the room, to stand next to you and say, son, daughter, your sins are forgiven. Like, I know, I know it all, and your sins are forgiven. I wanted to take a moment just to reflect on that. I'm going to read Psalm um, 103, 10 through 13. I'm going to invite you to take some time, and then we're going to close in worship. Um, Psalm 103, 10 through 13, this is what we started with. This is, this is David's celebration. And, you know, the Psalms, he goes through a lot of emotions throughout the Psalms. Um, and I think it's helpful because it's a reflection of probably our own life. But you see this moment where David just rejoices. And he's rejoicing in the fact that our sins are forgiven. Like, like the Father and God of creation is good to forgive us of our sins. He says, he does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. 